0: When I invite guests onto this podcast, I tell them to select any book they want to discuss. Favorites, despised, never read, challenging, perhaps misunderstood. Social science, novels, philosophy, biography, memoirs. This week on the Rhizomatic Reader, our first novel, one complicated in its structure, but brilliant in examining a range of human emotions and relationships, raising philosophical questions, memories, and leading readers to reflect on living and dying. One
1: of the things my mother said as she was in her last days, and she said it probably for a good year plus before she died, she said, you know, I read in a book somewhere that living is part of dying, and she said, I wanna do it well.
0: Today, a robust and provocative conversation about Elizabeth Strout's novel, Olive Again. I'm Peaton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader, a podcast designed to bring people and books into conversation across space and time. Today's guest is Alan Thomas. Alan is worldly, inquisitive, an avid reader, and a true intellectual. I met Alan through several book clubs we both attend in Houston, Texas, including the Imprint and Brazos book clubs. In addition to everything you will learn about him in this episode, part of what draws me to Alan is his spirit. He is a humanitarian and one of the kindest souls I've ever met. He has an intense love of reading, of course, but also theater, music, and the arts. I consider Alan a dear, dear friend, intellectual companion, and a wise elder. We recorded this conversation in July of 2020. I really want to start with, with hearing more about your reading life.
1: To me, reading was, My brother and I often talk about this. My brother, who's five years older than I, we often talk about how reading saved our lives Mm -hmm. because we lived in a dying Rust Belt city. Um, It was a city. We talk about the conspiracy of silence. People didn't talk about things in general, let alone difficult things or exciting or fun things. They just didn't talk. It was just boring. Um, And so reading was a way to get out of that it was almost like a, like somebody smothering you, like a wet cloth on your mouth, trying to breathe.
0: Living where you grew up.
1: Yes. And so reading was a way out of that. And I remember the first time my mother took me to the library and I walked around. And I must have been a really quite a little kid. And I said, and I walked out of there and said to myself, I'm going to read every book in that building. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was the beginning. That's how it had started. My mother was a very avid reader
0: too. She, she read was, so you grew up in a house where that was kind of commonplace.
1: Well, I, actually, it was her escape. Um, so she didn't really, she didn't talk much about it, but we saw books around and she was always, always had her, her nose in a book.
0: And it, did, it was that, uh, so you're reading from a young age, you and your brother, um, this sort of, carried with you through your whole adult life or you took a break what happened exactly
1: well one of the big things that happened was one thing that happened was when i was a senior in high school i didn't have a very good education to speak of and i didn't work very hard but i got into senior english and we read return of the native by thomas hardy Mm -hmm. and we had to write a paper on it and i Teachers gave it back to me. Said, "Well, I read the book. I don't want to hear what the book says. I want to hear what you thought of this book."
0: Oh yeah. Okay. And
1: that that just changed my life completely.
0: What was, like how did how do you feel like that changed your life? That's like a before. It was and like after
1: wow. Moment. What I think about this book is worthy of even considering.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, so talking about books didn't become just about plot reconstruction or whatever, which is kind of typically how you learn to talk about books growing up. It became about something more. Right. You have a master's in linguistics. How did you fall into that? What was your undergrad degree in? I know I should know this, but I don't.
1: Undergrad was Russian language and literature with a mm. with a heavy emphasis on international living in a residential college at a large mission, um, university.
0: What made you interested in Russian literature?
1: It's just one of those crazy things. I, um, I, I was so excited to get into Michigan State University and there was this experimental college that was one year old and, and it was residential living and it was focused on international living. And one of the requirements was by the end of your first year, you had to have two year proficiency in a language college level proficiency. Mm-hmm. And I saw the list, and I thought I studied French, three years of French in high school, but I was really quite bored with it. And uh, I thought, Russian? Hmm. And Russia was in the news at the time in the Cold War, and I thought, oh, why not? So I ended up taking two years of Russian in one year. It was compressed into one year. right? And uh, that's how I got got into Russian
0: so then, Russian literature interest in Russian literature followed, or you had to take Russian literature classes in college. Uh,
1: after the after the first year, which was two years of Russian, then we were all of our work was working with literature, reading literature, reading, and writing papers in Russian, which was a joke because one can't write a very good paper with that level of proficiency in the language, but.
0: Mm-hmm. It,
1: uh, yeah. That, I guess that was the beginning of my literary analysis.
0: That and Thomas Hardy. Yes. So then, so then, linguistics. You got into linguistics in graduate school. Was that at Michigan State also?
1: No, that was at University of Texas at Arlington. And I got into linguistics because I was making a career choice, and I was getting involved with a Bible translation organization, and had to have have these classes in linguistics to actually go out and do field work. And I specialized in literacy with, and also that's where I got my interest in the linguistic discipline called discourse analysis or in plain English, a narrative analysis. How, how is how is a narrative structured? And I think we'll talk a little bit about this if, if you want to talk about the structure of, of Olive again and Olive Kittredge itself. So, um, I'm, I'm intrigued at how a writer puts, structures uh, a book. A quick overview of how I approached this. I first heard about Olive Kitteridge the book, and I thought, "Oh, you know," I'm, and I don't know if I want to read it. I don't know what, you know. It wasn't hitting my you know short list of things to read. But I found out that HBO had a mini series of Olive Kitteridge, starring Francis McDormand, who is one of my favorite actors in the whole world. And so I watched that, and I thought, "Oh, she's a very." She's a very unlikable and difficult character, you know. Mm-hmm. it's like, I don't think I'm gonna read Olive Kitteridge. Um, but then uh Oprah mm-hmm. start restarted her book club, and her second choice was Olive again. And that just got me in in the way she she handled that. As a matter of fact, I've watched Oprah's that episode three times now because I find it intriguing how Oprah did did it. And, And the author was in the discussion with Oprah. So that's when I decided I wanted to read Olive again. But meanwhile, in my book club here, I thought, well, I'll have the group read Olive Kitteridge. And we read Olive Kitteridge. So it was the first time I'd read Stroud. So, you know, complicated direction, how I got there. We read it, and everybody in the in the book group gave it no more than a three out of five. They just said, you know, it was boring, it was kind of choppy, it was uneven, it you know, the structure was weird, and I agreed with them.
0: This is the original Um, book, right? Not right.
1: That's the original one. Okay. And the original one, I'll be very clear my my criticism on this one, because I can be a kind of a grumpy critic on. way people do books i felt like the publishers had taken several of strout's short stories jammed them together and said let's put them together and make a book out of them because some of the stories on all of the for the first run all of kitteridge are not really all barely in them in one story she's only like in one sentence she's only mentioned as sort of an aside and i thought I don't like what this publisher published or, or the author did. It's, it's, it seems kind of cheaty and not very professional. And, and yet there was something about this character who intrigued me Olive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I would tell anyone that you don't have to read the first book. Matter of fact, if you really love Oliver, you want to dig into Olive more, go back and read the first one, but read the second book, because there's more, more of, a development of Olive as a person and some transformation going on in their life. Mm -hmm. I didn't see much of that. If maybe, if any, in the first book. Okay. So, and, and I even felt that with the second book, I felt the structure is, uh, is a bit better. It's not as choppy, but there are some books that Olive's really not on the stage very much.
0: Exactly.
1: So in my preparation for this, our conversation, I just focused on the time, on the key places where Olive was involved, does that help? yeah,
0: yeah but I but just and I want to really do want to focus in on some of these places where Olive herself is kind of in the the space. But for someone who's not read this author before, I've not read her. This is my first time. Why do you think the book is structured this way? Because I agree with wow. you, even in this even in this book, the thing that I was so struck by was the fact that there are all these chapters where Olive either doesn't appear wow. or she appears in such a tertiary manner that mm-hmm. you have to wonder how it fits in wow. with the story that Strout is trying to tell. Now, I have some idea about that now, having read the book, but I'm just curious about your thoughts before we...
1: Well, I'm interested in your ideas because I don't understand why she did this i though as I listen to Elizabeth Strout speaking with Oprah, I think that Elizabeth imagines these characters and these stories, and they just sort of Olive appears to her and wants to be be heard from and um which is quite different from your traditional novel where you've got a plot that goes through. Um, and, and the glue of holding things together in Olive again, there's not much glue and it's sort of left up up to the reader to keep the connections going. There, there, one person said they were interconnected and I'd say, well, they're sort of interconnected.
0: Well, yeah. So that's what I sort of thought was, so I read the first few chapters. Olive is kind of in some of those chapters. Then there's these chapters where she doesn't appear at all. There are these other characters, and so for a while I thought, "Oh, this is going to be like that Richard Powers, book, uh, The Overstory, mm. where there's going to be the development of all these characters, and at some point they're going to all come back together." Because for a minute I had stopped kind of paying attention to like some of these characters. I was like, "I don't know what these perp- people's roles are. It's not mm-hmm. clear to me." Then I started paying attention because I was like, these people are all going to come back in some way. Like there's going to be some kind of thing at the end. It doesn't end up being the case. <laughs> they don't come back. So I was just, by the time I got to the end, I was like, I just don't understand why she did this the way that she did it.
1: Well, and I'm intrigued at, at how many readers stick with the structure and with that, that way she did it.
0: Yeah, what I was going to say was it's not until I went back through because, you know, you and I, we have a similar practice, you know, you underline all this stuff, you bookmark it, you do all this kind of thing. when you go back through and you write it all down, you start to see something that emerges. And one of the things that I thought was just that this is really a book about, you know, provincial life, the everyday, the mundane kind of a little bit of a treatise on, it it's a sort of depressing book in a lot of ways. Right? Oh, I
1: don't think it's sort of, Paul. I, I think definitely you want, you don't want to be already a little depressed and read this book.
0: <laughs> no. Okay. Cause I, I did, I was trying to think about like how to balance my discussion of like, I find many of the themes of the book to be highly depressing and and yet I walked away from the book feeling some kind of better understanding, like you said, of the types of things that people are dealing with in their everyday life. One of the things that I found super intriguing about the way that she tells these depressing stories is that she doesn't really harp on things. There are these mm. lines throughout the book that just sort of get dropped in. I, I call them the tragedy lines of the book it'll be like, I can just, you know, I'm going to paraphrase some of these things that happen, right? Sure. You know, there's a line, something about like, oh, she was never really the same after her son stabbed that woman 29 times. And it just gets dropped in, right? There's like a story where, (laughs) oh, okay. Or there's like this story about this man who loved this other woman, was married to this woman. The woman he actually loved went and sat down in the middle of the freeway, got hit by a car and she committed suicide. Right, so there are these like. There's a way that she structures the stories that smacks you with these really terrible things that people have had to experience, and then she but she, kind but of, she
1: doesn't doesn't dwell. I like that your insight on that, Paul. She, she doesn't, doesn't dwell. dwell,
0: right? It's like she just moves on, and she just it, it, she just kind of like helps you to see, like, oh yeah, people die people uh, soil themselves, people get hit by a bus. They, I mean, there's all these things that happen to these characters. People go on antidepressants, they have affairs, they do all this kind of stuff. And despite all that, life just goes on. I don't actually dislike Olive. If you had just read this book, what would your relationship be to her as a character?
1: Well, Olive saved herself in this book because Olive began to become a little more self-aware, little by little, mm-hmm. and she began started to be admit that she had messed up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So she was she was. Uh, because when I read the first book, I didn't like her. And I thought, why do I want to waste my time reading about this terrible character? I felt like I became like all of judgmental, critical of her saying, you know, you're just judgmental, you know, you're interpersonally aggressive, you're a bully, you know, you're an unkind. I mean, I actually sat down and made a, uh, sat down with a, a piece of paper and wrote down, you know, pluses and minuses about all of and, uh, you know, like she's strange, she's prickly, she's wry, cantankerous. Uh, I I wrote down, she's sometimes brutal. I mean, she's really brutal in the way oh, she handles she's very people. Brutal. Mm-hmm. Uh, very she's brutal. not self-aware. And then I wrote, is she mean? Question mark. And that's when I stopped and thought, I don't know if she's mean or not. I don't know if she's intentionally mean. I just think that's who she is. She's just.
0: Yeah, I wrote well. down so that, I wrote down that she's sardonic. Which means it means like she's sarcastic and somewhat bitter. Right? Yeah, she comes across high. she comes across as bitter, but the that's reason I chose word. the word sardonic is because her bitterness to me was endearing. Mm. I wrote down endearingly bitter about life's disappointments. And
1: Endearing, you know, meaning that you you thought that she was a little bit lovable in the, in the mix of it all.
0: You know, I really I really did, and I think that I, I realized that in the book she's going through this kind of self transformation issue. She's obviously an old woman. She's looking back on her life and having these moments that we all will probably have at some point where we're trying to evaluate what has become of our lives? What have we accomplished? Were we good people? Were we bad people? And there's all these relationships that she has to look at that through, including her two husbands, the relationship with her son, Christopher. So, you know, i rather quite like her actually. Um, Though I find the, I don't want to necessarily go here right now, but I, I do find the last page of the novel to be really, you know, quite quite difficult. I wonder,
1: Paul, if it's—I just this just came to me. I wonder if it's like—I don't think you've had this with your parents yet, but I wonder if it's like having a parent who is going through the last stages of their life, mm-hmm. and it just gets messy and ugly and sad. And maybe that—that seems to be how she wraps up the book.
0: No, it is it is how she wraps up the book. I mean, think about all the things that happens. And I'll just, you know, since this will probably get cut into the edited version, I'll just tell people we're going to say things about what happens in the book. So yep. um, she has this heart attack. You know, she ends up having to go through this. I mean, actually, I find these parts of the book about what happens to your body as you start aging. I mean, I'm not that mm-hmm. old yet, but this this whole thing about you know the fact that she she says she soils herself, her bowels pretty consistently release themselves when she's not <laughs> in the bathroom um
1: yeah, there's a little bit too much information there, isn't there?
0: That well, is some of the- It's part of getting older, right, and it's part of getting right. older that we don't and and then just like moving out of your house. Being put into this kind of like assisted living, retirement, community, apartment home thing, not having friends, the loneliness in the last two chapters that she seems to experience. It just makes you think a lot about what the end of life must be like. And if she was happy, content, she doesn't seem to be by the end of the book content with who she is as a person.
1: That's a very good question. I would agree with that. But I think she's, I think that she has. She's achieved enough self-awareness that I don't know how to say this. She has enough self-awareness that I think she's seeing some of the value of the, of the
0: troubles and the
1: struggles that
0: she's been through. Towards the end, you see her writing these memories down. Right, Her son Christopher brings her this typewriter, and she's writing these things down. And of course, the last page of the book is this moment where she writes down this really profound line, you know, that's probably worth talking about. I'll just read this quote that you sent me on my notes. It's quote four, okay? um, because I think this is important to talk about, you know, and so she sat watching the sky, the clouds, the clouds high up there. And she looked down then at the roses, which were pretty amazing after just one year. She leaned forward and peered at the rose bush. Why, there was another bud coming right behind that bloom. Boy, did that make her happy, the sight of that new, fresh rosebud. And then she sat back and thought about her death and the sense of wonder and trepidation returned to her. It would come. Yep, yep, she said. And for many more minutes, she sat there, not even really knowing what she thought. Finally, Olive got up slowly, leaning on her cane, and moved to her table. She sat down in her chair, put her glasses on, and put a new sheet of paper into the typewriter. Leaning forward, poking at the keys, she typed one sentence. Then she typed one more. She pulled the sheet of paper out and placed it carefully on top of her pile of memories. The words she had just written reverberated in her head. I do not have a clue who I have been. Truthfully, I do not understand a thing. It's on page 249 of the Kindle edition. I think it's like page 289 of my edition. So, you know, a lot of what this book deals with, Alan, is is coming to grips, coming to terms with our own demise, our own mortality. mm mm-hmm. Does it make you think about that at all?
1: Hmm. Um my head was somewhere else. Hold on a second. Um
0: Well, tell me where your head was, and then we can go back to my question.
1: My head was, Olive, you're being hard on yourself. Mm. You really do have a clue. Through two books, we've watched you get some clues. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's in and, and I guess as a reader, I'm sitting going, should i feel sad for her you know is this really depressing that she still thinks she has no clue or is she just being olive i don't have a clue i don't know what happened it's like come on olive straighten up here you you, you, you've shown us some brilliant insights into things you've done uh you know she became like she became like the pastor father confessor to cindy who was dying of cancer you know and it's a brilliant piece of compassion and empathy and uh, t- uh, active love for this woman. Uh, so I, that that's where I that's where I got stopped with with the, where the author ended this was like, no, let's remember there were some real bright spots. Um, I don't get depressed about dying. I'm not upset about it. I actually look forward to it. Um, so
0: I'm, I'm very curious about this device that Strout puts in because it doesn't get developed in the book. It just gets developed in these last pages of the book about her writing her memories down. Mm-hmm. And I, a, and then this, this paper, you know, that she types this sentence on about, I don't have a clue who I've been. Truthfully, I don't understand a thing makes, you know, it seems like a cover page, right? Or, or kind of like a forward to whatever it is. And so you sort of get this vision in your head of like, okay, is, is the series of books themselves Olive's memories? That was one of the things that I thought
1: Hmm.
0: was I was like, okay, maybe that's what Strout was up to was that these short stories are actually things that Olive remembers. They are her memories she doesn't necessarily insert herself into all of those stories because she's trying to tell a greater story about what life is actually like and how do you get your way through life. Mm -hmm. Then I thought maybe she's trying to feel sorry for herself. And when her son Christopher, after she dies, reads these memories, he'll somehow have some greater understanding about his mother because of this strained relationship between, Christopher and his mother is something that seems to be a theme in the book. So Mm -hmm. it can go lots of ways. You could read it lots of different ways. I agree. But death, death in and of itself is a theme in the book. Just, you know, you, you bring up this, this, uh, quote about this chapter with Cindy. And I Mm -hmm. think this is one of the chapters. Yeah. Your first two quotes are actually from this chapter one has to do that. The chapter is called the light. Uh-huh. And, uh, talk a little bit about why this chapter moved you so much.
1: Well, I, 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 I described that. I felt like this was a new olive. This wasn't an olive I had not seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to some more background on this before she went to see Cindy, She's. It starts out that she's Cindy in the grocery store, and Cindy's obviously having some trouble with chemotherapy or her mind or whatever. And and Olive just she gets very practical. She goes in. Okay, what's on your list? Let's get what's on your list. And let's get you out of here. You know, just such a practical thing that she doesn't sit there and analyze her and ask her feelings. She just takes helps her take care of business. But then she follows up on it and goes to see Cindy and. And goes to, you know, and just sits down with her and lets her talk about dying. Mm -hmm. And Olive is honest about dying. She said, Yeah, it's going to happen to all of us.
0: Well, and and in fact, she says that she's scared of it. Yeah. To ease Cindy, right? To be like, It's okay if you're scared.
1: And this is in contrast with. What our culture does, and this was in the Oprah segment, not only Oprah, but Stroud and some of the people who are participating, were talking about how our culture, it's not okay to talk about death. And our culture is a bit unusual in this. We don't talk about death. We don't want to talk about the details, uh, you know, her her fellow librarians send her a get well card and everybody knows she's not going to get well and she just picks up, rips it up, throws it in the trash, you know. uh, Her husband can't deal with the reality that she's going to be going. Uh, So I just thought it was, I think it was who Strout had said when she was writing this, she said, well, she said, after she wrote this bit, she said, well, look at you, Olive. You're growing up a bit. (laughs) Mm. So that's why this one, to me, was it was, and that's when I started to change my mind about Olive. That she wasn't all bad. She was something more than the tough exterior that she showed to the world. Strauss's <laughs> use of nature. And yeah. the seasons, which we talked about a little bit before, was to me like a, it was like a uh, breath of fresh air and a breath mm-hmm. of survival, you know, that we get all these things that you've talked about as well, you know, some of these really grim stories and sadnesses and, and awful things happening. And then you read this thing about uh, what she should have written about was that light in February, how it changed the way the world looked. People complained about February. It was cold and snowy and oftentimes wet and damp, and people were ready for spring. But for Cindy, the light of the month had always been like a secret, and it remained a secret even now, because in February, the days were really getting longer, and you could see it if you really looked. You could see how at the end of each day, the world seemed cracked open, and extra light made its way across the stark trees and promised. It promised that light. And what a thing that was. And Cindy lay on her bed. She could see this even now the gold of that of the last light opening the world. I mean, oh. to me, there's, there's hope there, there's beauty, there's poetry. Uh, it's just stunning.
0: It, it really is. It's one of the best lines of the book. What I really loved was when she was writing about autumn, because like you, I grew up in the Midwest. So of course, I can relate to this line about February. I mean, growing up in Wisconsin and then living in Minnesota, it is dark, cold, and terrible for pretty much from like October until April, right? but you do start to see the days get longer and you do start to, you will occasionally have these days in the early spring where like there will just be enough warmth that you feel like, oh, it, this is going to end. This, this terminable coldness and terribleness is going to end type of thing. I really liked the way that she wrote about autumn though, and that comes up quite a bit. Uh, the mm-hmm. way that the trees change color, the light coming through the trees watching the um maple leaves wow. fall down one at a time or in pairs um it's 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 quite it's lovely it's quite beautiful part of the book i would say the rose and to me
1: it was like a breather from the intensity of this book and yeah. and also this felt like a metaphor for her entire narrative in what you way? know it's a metaphor that There are there are rays of light, and it feels like February is going to go on forever, and we're never going to get out of this frozen tundra of February. But there are rays of light, and I think that's a metaphor for Olive's trajectory. Mm -hmm. She does have some glimmers of light. She she doesn't she doesn't you know some people think that people never change after age X, you know, that people just don't change, and she does change and she grows. So to me, it was just a beautiful juxtaposition of how nature gives us this relief, and how the author has given us these relief, these reliefs, these breathers in the very sad and um, sometimes, as you said, tragic uh, events of just living day to day and dying, and the trajectory toward dying.
0: You know, one of the things that I was really intrigued about in the book was the was these like relationships between cuz this this is a book also largely about relationships these relationships between the husbands and wives between the brothers and sisters between the even between like lawyers and their clients Yeah, I just, that scene between, there's two characters in the book, Bernie and Suzanne. Suzanne's father dies in a tragic house fire, um, gets burned to death, incinerated, And, um, and Bernie is their, like, kind of lifetime lawyer or whatever, and they have this really intense conversation about, you know, just life and love and infidelity because Suzanne has had an affair and she's asking Bernie if she should tell her husband about the affair with her therapist. And Bernie is talking about how clearly her father loved her, even though it's clear from the story that Suzanne never felt that kind of relationship with her father. I don't know. There's just something about the way these relationships are framed I have a I like few what other... you
1: had this I've been thinking again about what you said about relationships and that that is really true. So much of the book is really it's linked to troubled relationships. Most of them were troubled.
0: I don't know if they were troubled or if they were misunderstood. See, that's or one just, of the things that I was nor- grappling or just, with.
1: Or just normal? Oh, misunderstood. That's an interesting question.
0: Because this is really what I was thinking about with a lot of these relationships, the way that she writes them. It seems like most of these people in the book have some sort of problematic relationship with somebody, mostly family members. And the reason I say misunderstood is because it seemed to me like a lot of the reasons that there were problems was because there were misunderstandings or there were miscommunications, things that, things that didn't get said. Things that were missed in translation, for lack of a better word. Mm. I don't necessarily have any textual evidentiary support for that claim about the way that I read the relationships. But it just seems to me like, like she seems to be making some kind of commentary about the fact that we often misunderstand people in our lives because we are missing some piece of information or something was not said to us, right? Like I'm thinking specifically about this, um, I'm thinking specifically about this like relation or this scene that I don't know why this scene in particular felt so powerful to me in the book, but the scene between Suzanne and Bernie, Uh uh, Suzanne's father dies in this tragic house fire. And Suzanne is some kind of, she's a lawyer of some sort in New York city. That's another thing in the book. There's, there's this thing about the difference between the rural and the urban, but we can talk Mm -hmm. about that if you want to. Um, but Suzanne has this moment where she's asking Bernie if Bernie thought her father was proud of her. And Bernie says something of like, you know, I know your father was proud of you. And then she says, but did he ever say it, right? And it, it just struck me because it was like, I think so many of us go through our lives with relationships where we want somebody to say something to us. And, okay. and we don't hear the thing that we want to have heard, even though the thing that we want to have heard is probably true, right? Like Suzanne's pro- father probably was proud of her. But he never said it. And so Suzanne has to live with this kind of open question, this open wound about if she lived up to her father's expectations. And it's such a psychological thing that we do to ourselves as humans. Mm. You know, Olive herself, I feel like the relationship with Christopher is so much about something that she wants to hear him say. And, and and I wondered if the thing that she wanted to hear him say was that she was a good mother because mm. there's this whole scene at the end where, the remember she has the heart attack, she's with the doctor, and there's this dialogue between her and the doctor. And the doctor says something to her like, you must have been a really good mother, Olive. And then she says, well, why do you say that? And then the doctor says, well, your son calls here every day to check on you. And Olive seems sort of flabbergasted by that, right? Uh So I guess the book really made me think about what are the things that we want people to say to us that they don't say to us?
1: That's an excellent question,
0: Paul. And how does it end up kind of steering the direction of our lives in certain types of ways because we psychologically, can't bring ourselves to ask the question that we want to ask of the people closest to us in our lives. There's these questions in the book about religion, spirituality, and atheism. So, you know, Suzanne is, Suzanne is, obviously distraught about what did her father think about her but there's also this to me alan this is one of the lines of the whole book right here it's on page 116 in the print copy and i'm just going to read it because i think it's just this wow thing suzanne and bernie had been talking about their religious um, beliefs and uh, whether wow. they're atheist, secular, Jewish, all of this comes up. And Suzanne just says, quote, I think our job, maybe even our duty, is to bear the burden of the mystery with as much grace as we can. End quote. It's, it's really, it's really that's powerful. Some, that's
1: something that could have been written 100 years ago, 500 years ago. You know, it could have been written by Saint Thomas Aquinas or some Greek philosopher, right? But it's very current in very current language. Bear the mystery, the burden of the mystery, with as much grace as possible. And I mean, I could just get lost in that thinking about what she's saying there.
0: Oh yeah, that whole section. You know, they have this. She has Suzanne has this kind of you know, philosophical treatise on atheism. And uh, they they sort of talk about this like cosmic relationality, right? Like, oh, when I was a kid walking in the forest, I had this sense of like the interconnected nature of all things. and And then there's this, you know, and then it ends with this quote that I read about the mystery. And yeah, you really just think about it because it's another way that death gets brought into the book for me. Mm. And like dealing with your own mortality with, but it's not, it's not heavy handed, right? It's not this kind of like, sometimes you read these books and they browbeat you with these kinds of questions, right? This is just very light. If you read it with enough slowness, you could sit with that quote, which I did for a long time. What does that Mm -hmm. even mean to bear the burden of the mystery? With as much grace as we can what does it mean and, to you and what does that mean with grace with grace yeah
1: it mean it means not just accepting it it means being graceful about it mean graceful means you're being kind to yourself and to others gracious uh, yeah maybe that's the brilliance of her of what she's doing here is she i think even as a reader, she challenges me to say, okay, what are the things in your life that like this that you might want to re examine?
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: Things that you would ha- thought you had all figured out, but well, not really. They need some, need some more thought. And, and I, I really do want to s- do one thing before we end that. And that is to talk a little bit more about loneliness.
0: Yeah, let's do that.
1: Because, the thing that I found interesting about loneliness was, as I read this book, I felt very grateful that I am not lonely. Mm-hmm. I'm a very solitary person, as you know. You know me quite well. Mm-hmm. I'm very solitary, and I like my solitude, but I'm not lonely. And I, The only time in my life I really felt lonely two times was when I was a little kid, and I was so isolated from the rest of the world, which is why, probably why I went out and had to be part of a bigger world. And the other time was in the grimmest parts of a marriage mm. where it was becoming very destructive. She was becoming destructive to me. And that was that's about really the only times in my lives that I really felt, well, oh, there's one other time up in the mountains of Papua New Guinea. And we could, the only way you could get out of this place was by a small airplane. That's how isolated it was. And I used to sit down on the grass and thinking,
0: this is what loneliness is. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up loneliness. I mean, I, it you know, the book did make me think about, for example, my mother. And my mother lives alone and she lives in a big house, kind of like Olive. You know, she's not, I mean, my mother is not like Olive at all in any way, but But this this stuff about the loneliness, particularly when she moves into the assisted living community at the end, this kind of tiny apartment, there's this sadness that develops around the fact that her apartment faces north and she doesn't get any direct sunlight. I mean, you can I again again the light, right? (laughs) The light, yeah. But like, you know, you do feel bad for her because you think, wow, she really is probably like a lonely. Person, even even that poet chapter, you know, this idea of lon- I mean loneliness is a theme of the book. Yep, um, for sure But yeah, I, I guess like the thing, the reason I brought up my mother was because it's like, you know do you, does the book also make people who read it think differently about their aging parents or the uh, other people or the other people in their life who are aging, right? Exactly. Yeah, I'm glad we talked about loneliness,
1: and um, you were talking about um, you know aging parents and aging friends, um, and I think what was interesting for me is that my parents' generation, their mo- their mantra was, "We don't want to be any bother to anyone," and I think a lot of that is falling away, and I think this book points out that you're not really being a bother you know that it's it's part of living one of the things my mother said is she was in her last days and she said it probably for a good year plus before she died she said you know i read in a book somewhere that living is part of dying and she said i want to do it well
0: mm. so she lived a full life your mother
1: yeah. And she was talking, you know, that's the kind of wisdom I think that Strout has brought up, you know, a lot little words like that, words of wisdom. This the one you talked about before, you know, living with living with the mystery and, and um doing so with as much grace as possible. This was the last book in the world I wanted to read in general. Didn't care for it that much, and yet it had to be discussed. You know, it's like I have had to discuss it with somebody like Paul who can just really dig into this and say, why don't we just take this book and throw it across the room and say, I don't want to read this damn book. You know, <laughs> and yet in the time we've spent together here, we've seen why there's something going on here that we just can't dismiss it and can't dismiss all of, can't dismiss these people. There's something powerful going on here it's not the greatest structure. It's not the structure I would have preferred her to do this book in, but there's still something very powerful going on. And, uh, you know, you gave me permission with that at the beginning when you said it can be a book you don't like, or you having trouble with. And so I took you up on that idea.
0: Well, and I think we've had this experience time and again. I mean, I know I have where, I always leave a discussion of a book, almost always, I almost always leave a discussion of a book much more appreciative of the book than if I had just read it and not thought about it. When I just read a book and I don't go back through my notes and I just, you know, sometimes a book will blow me away and that's fine. But a lot of times if you don't talk about the book, you don't really think in depth about what it is that the book is doing. And I'm interested in other people's experiences with these texts. You know, I'm so thankful that you made me read this book because I really don't think I would have ever read it. Mm -hmm. And it is, despite, like you said, some of the oddities of the book. I'm leaving this conversation tonight feeling I have so many more things to think about. I will contemplate some of this stuff.
1: One of the things I wanted to do in my new reading life, my real reading life in retirement was not to just be consuming things, but to be digging in and talking to other people about them. You know, not just being the consumer that we are in America and, you know, read that book, put that on the shelf, get another book, start again, read again, read again. You know, it's like this consumerism was like, no, there's no, there are nuggets here. We're going to, are we going to just. Let them fall by the wayside, or are we going to go in and dig in? And I, I just feel like it's been such a privilege to talk about Olive with you, and how complex she is, and all these characters and how complex they are. Uh, so it's just you know. it So the, you know, this is a good example of how rich my life is now of having this reading life, which is not just a reading life. It's a, it's analysis, it's thinking, it's reflection, it's Having a salon, a discussion, having this conversation with you, uh, and I hope I'm hoping that that more of the world will be doing some of this stuff when they have a little bit more time right now. So thank you very much, Paul. This has been thank a thank you. Joy.
0: I really appreciate it. A few days following our conversation. Alan sent me a further reflection on how Elizabeth Strout reminds him of Russian writers. Alan says, despite my quibbles with the way the book is structured, I had memories of reading timeless stories of Gogol and Chekhov. Strout is the first female writer to challenge their dominance as she writes what seems to be short stories that are connected to Olive and some important themes like aging, death, and difficult, cantankerous people. Like the Russian writers, Strout is superb in describing the everydayness of life for regular people. She enhances the Russians' approach with the wisdom of her many thoughtful insights on human beings and the difficulties of surmounting suffering and sadness, end quote. Alan Thomas is now in the eighth year of retirement, living the life he dreamed of when he finished a liberal arts degree in Russian language and literature. Drawing on several careers in financial accounting, international humanitarian aid, and linguistics, he now focuses on a series of self-directed, lifelong learning projects, such as studying James Baldwin's examination of race, queerness, and social critique, culture and imperialism with a focus on the history of India, and consciousness, paranormal experiences, and the need for science and the arts to be in rigorous dialogue. For a better balanced perspective on the world, he regularly reads The Economist and memoirs of remarkable women and men in the geopolitical realms of our world. You can contact Alan via email adt719 at gmail.com or follow him on Instagram at adt719. I'm always open to your comments, suggestions, and insights. Feel free to email me rhizoreader at gmail.com or contact me through our Rhizomatic Reader Instagram account at Reader, you can listen again share this conversation and rate our podcast on soundcloud apple podcasts spotify or google play where you can also listen to the unedited version of my conversation with alan we further discuss alan's reading life and interests some additional major themes of olive again including strout's ability to discern and write about the idiosyncrasies of human behavior societal issues and political undertones addressed in the novel, the state of Maine, and my desire to get old. You can find a transcript of this conversation and show notes on the episodes link of our website, www.risoreader.com. Our theme music is composed by Leo Sokolovsky, copyright free and available on SoundCloud. All music in today's episode is copyright free and used with appropriate permissions. My name is Peaton, and this has been the Rhizomatic Reader.